rather than me saying, here's an answer. Yeah. It's like, what if you discovered it? When you figure something out for yourself, do you ever forget it? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Looking forward to a great week. It's going to be a busy Monday, so we're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. Uh, Q&A today is with Vic, and Vic is a member of IFSU, and so uh, I've talked to him on several occasions, but he had a, a really, really good series of questions in regards to, to mentorship, and if you've followed anything that I've done in the past, you know that I'm a big fan of the mentorship apprenticeship model. In fact, I would consider it essential in the physical therapy, rehab, fitness industries. Um, a lot of people are trying to get by on just uh, explicit information, the stuff that you can write down or the stuff that you can talk about when the reality is this is an experiential profession, relies heavily on the, on the tacit um, side of knowledge. And so again, the mentorship model becomes essential. Um, so we talked about the value of mentors, um, when uh, mentors are valuable and when they are not. Um, the uh, interference associated with, with your own biases, um, answering your own questions, embracing the struggle, as we would say, um, developing your filters as to how you're gonna process information and think critically. So again, really, really good questions from, from Vic. So I, I enjoyed this call a great deal. Um, it's probably one of my favorites um, so far. And uh, I, I think you'll find it valuable as well. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Don't forget to go to the YouTube channel today and subscribe so you get those videos uh, first and uh, get notified on, on those as well. Um, have a great Monday and I will see you tomorrow. We are recording and the clock has started, Vic. What is your question? So this was born out of, uh, after I watched your video on the evolution of your own model. And so I know you've spoken about the value of mentorship in the past. So yep. do you think that mentorship can could provide interference in the natural evolution of one's model? And do you think that there's more value or possibly more value in the struggle of answering your own questions as opposed to maybe a mentor biasing you in one way or the other? And I know you do a really good job of this where you try to facilitate with questions, sometimes frustrating, uh, but it helps. <laughs> it really helps with the learning because then, yeah, because normally, you know, Normally you ask a question and then your your answer is usually with a question, but there's so much value in that. Um, well, yeah. Um, so it, there, there, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. But but you also have to kind of recognize is, is that uh, um, when you're seeking out in information, there are people that have better experience or or more voluminous experience than, than you have and that's where the value that's where the value lies is that you can benefit from someone else's experiment or, or experience and so the the i'm trying to think of the quote it's like um 
knowledge is what you gain from your own experience, but wisdom is what you gain from someone else's experience. And so, so that's why you would seek out, out mentors and you don't have to have one. In fact, nobody really has one. Uh, we, there are certain times in your personal or professional evolution where you're going to benefit from someone else's guidance. And then later on, it's going to be someone else that, that has this greater influence. And then there's that point where, yeah, it is just you and it is you trying to figure these things out. And then that's why you might go back to someone and you say, Hey, what do you think about this? Give me, give me your thoughts on this based on your experience. What do you think about this? And it doesn't mean that, that you immediately grab onto that advice. Like, like, unfortunately many people do. And they say, Oh, this is the truth. It's like, you, you really need to take it through your own filtering system. And so, so what the mentor is, is that filter for you, because you're going to filter information through someone's experience. And then you're going to filter it through someone else's experience. And then you're going to see what these outcomes are. And you're going to say, well, based on what I'm doing, this might be the better path, or this might be the best way for me to understand this at this point, knowing full well that you should expect to change over time. Changing your mind is perfectly reasonable based on, on the information that you have available to you, based on the experiences that you've had. Um, case in point, I think I may, I may have talked about this before. A while back, there was a, there was a Twitter argument that I was unfortunately uh, exposed to. Somebody sent me a link and I followed it. Mm-hmm. And, and what it was, was a strength and conditioning coach and a physical therapist having an argument on Twitter about return to play protocols. And, and the strength coach had a very valid point and the physical therapist had a very valid point. They were both correct because they were looking at it from two totally different perspectives at two totally different times. And so that's one of those things that, that we have to recognize is like, you know, everybody has a, a lens that they look through, filters that they process information through. And so like, again, it's like, where are we in, the, in this time scale? And then there are multiple correct answers in, in complex situations. And so as, as the learner or the mentee, you can latch on to somebody, but you have to recognize the fact that they are biased just like everyone else is, assuming they're human, right? Because we're all, we're all biased, whether you like it or not. Um, it's, it's one of those things that, that I constantly have to battle because, because I have a very, very strong perspective on certain things that can be interference with myself. I can slow myself down Mm -hmm. because I'm not willing to give up something because I get emotionally attached to ideas just like everybody else does. But at least I have the recognition that I get emotionally attached like everybody else does. Right. And so always having, having that awareness as you go through this process. And so again, so there's going to be a point in time where somebody that's, that's providing you some sort of value is going to be so important to you. And then they're not, and that's okay. And doesn't mean you're a bad person. doesn't mean that, and you're allowed to disagree as well, because if you gain some measure of experience that that person doesn't have, guess what? You now have another filter that they don't have available to them. And so maybe they, maybe at that point, they're holding you back. Yeah, right. one of the one of the uh, most valuable things is that you've talked about is kind of the principles as the filtering system. And so right. I work with someone who's has a lot more experience than me right. um, a couple of days a week, and they have a totally different perspective. But using that filtering system, I can I 
I'm able to see, you know, the value and even how it fits within my model and how, oh yeah, this, they're saying essentially the same thing. They may be saying it a little bit differently, but the principle is the same. And so that's been really valuable to be able to kind of facilitate my thinking, my thought process and clinical judgment. Well, that if you understand, if, if you can get to foundational principles or first principles, however you want to state that, then, then that is, that is the, the answer. That's how you figure things out because we are behaving and interacting in an uncertain situation, especially like, humans are complex. Everybody, while similar, has their differences. And so we have to apply a principle and then that's how we make the next decision because we are dealing with uncertainty and we're playing probabilities at all times, at all times. Cause you don't know what the outcome is gonna be because every outcome, here you go. Here's a nice one for you. Every outcome is possible at any time. Okay. All of them are possible. Different percentages are in play. Your job as you evolve as a, as a professional or as a practitioner is to learn how to narrow the probabilities in your favor. Mm. But let's just say you've got an 82% chance of being successful with what you have decided is the appropriate action. And then there's an 18% probability against you. And guess what? It didn't work. So it fell into the 18. That's not your fault. And that doesn't mean that you made a bad decision because you made a principle-based decision. It's just that something else that you can control or didn't account for interfered and shifted you into the low end of the probability scale. That's all. And, and that's, that's a tough one to take because we, we emotionally invest in everything that we do. We want to help someone or we want, we want to be successful too. It's like, let's not take that you know, off the table. It's like, we have emotions too, that, that we invest in these things and we want to be right. Everybody likes to be right. Cause it feels good. No. But, but you have to understand that every time I interact with somebody, there are things that you don't account for. And we call that luck. And, and so luck really does exist. There was a long period of time where I said, where I was in denial about that, right? It's like, ah, yeah. ah, there can't be, there is luck, there is luck. But, but luck is just those things that, that either we can't see, we can't account for, or, or just totally ignore that does interfere with the interaction. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, just to follow up on that, how do you, like, what was your evolution of, I guess, your first principles? Is that kind of the, is it the same way? Um, and like, when do you, is it, continually evolving your first principles or do those not, those don't change? Well, by, by, by definition, first principles are, are, are non-contextual. They are absolute. So, so okay. real simple. When we talk, when you talk about my model and I say compression and expansion are absolutes, mm -hmm. like that is, that is, you know, across the board universal. Then, then it's just a matter of like, okay, how does that principle apply in this context? So when I'm talking about, about humans and movement, it's like based on our structure, how do I follow that, that rule? And then it's just a matter of identifying things. And so then, then it becomes kind of interesting. And then we can go after like little bits and pieces of research that say, oh, when you do this, this is what happens based on our best understanding of, of how, you know, um, segments interact or, or structure or fluid mechanics or wh whatever it might be. But the principle is absolute. And so, so again, by definition, there is, there is no, there is no, 
next, right? Next. Yeah. It is, it is the, now, here's, here's, here's where, where you can run into trouble. It's like, you can misidentify a principle. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, how do you know that there's not a previous right. like, regression? And, and, and again, that's just so. So that so again, that that's one of those situations where you go, oh, I have new information, or I have better information, mm. and and now I need to rethink what I thought was the absolute. Mm. But but that again, over time, investment of experience, you're going to get closer and closer and closer to that to that concept. Gotcha. Right. And 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 the thing that you want to recognize is there shouldn't be that many. Okay. That was the thing that frustrated me yeah. because, you know, at, at, I'm, I'm 30 years in, you know, as far as, you know, professional level stuff. And it's like, everybody had all these different rules and it's just, and, and then they were vague. And then they were like, like the, these nebulous concepts that didn't, weren't well-defined and it, it, it just started to frustrate me. And it's like, okay, hang on. So let's take a big step back and let's just say, what is the absolute? Mm. And then start there, then start to look back and say, okay, if, if this is the absolute principle, how does this apply in this situation? Because that's how you dig, literally, anytime you get frustrated or every anytime you get lost, you fall back on, on those absolutes. It's like, how are they achieving this? What is the limiting factor? And then that's why you have to have some specialized knowledge. And you say, okay, I need to understand the respiratory system to a certain degree. I need to understand um, how we evolved embryologically. So I understand how the structure changes over time and influences what this is, right? And, and then we can start to, to take that specialized knowledge, apply it in a principled manner. And that's how we arrive at solutions. That's how you figure stuff out on the fly. That's how you become creative, Right. Yeah. There are certain you ever have those days where you're trying to figure something out and you, you literally make up an exercise on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the and then it works. And then it's like, way to go me. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like one of those. But, but see that. But that's that is the that is the, the reason that you have to approach this from a principle based uh, perspective. Yeah. 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 That's, that's huge. And I, I know what's that. That's how you figure this stuff out. Yeah. Because I know over the over the summer, I had asked you about um, just how you. It was about the evolution of your model and how you stay prolific in in terms of the content that you create. And you had indicated that you were always just creative, and so part of that was that was where my you know where this questioning line of questioning came about. Where do you feel like you're, you know that that's part of that being in that struggle was what uh helps facilitate that struggling with those with the failure and i know you've talked about oh, that that yeah, yeah, is what yeah. you know it creates that or fosters that creativity absolutely absolutely it, it, the the emotional investment is what consolidates the memory and the learning and that's why it's important to struggle why do i answer people with questions to make them struggle to answer. Yeah, absolutely. I don't do it. I don't do it to make people angry, mm -hmm. but I, I need them to feel the frustration Yeah. just a little bit. So, so they have to dig just a little bit deeper rather than me saying, here's an answer. Yeah. It's like, what if you discovered it when you figure something out for yourself, do you ever forget it? No. no. Cause there's this, like this, this wave of, of whatever you want to call it. You know, it, it's a reward. It's like, you know, you do something great for somebody. Somebody says something nice about you. You always feel good about it, right? 
but but it's it's that it's that that wave of emotion that that locks it in it's like oh i nailed it and then it again it's a memory forever yeah right it's like being yeah. in a car accident you ever been in a car accident yeah yeah you remember it yeah. yeah exactly it's like it's like right as soon as i said that you got this you got a picture in your head of like one of those moments in time where where you were in the midst of it yeah. right and you and you remember it every time and the yeah. detail is still very very i could tell you the very first car accident I was in. It was a rainy day. We're going to a bowling alley. The car slammed on its brakes right in front of my mom. And sure enough, we slammed right into the back. And I, you know, and I was like, I think I was like uh, nine years old at the time. Yeah. So my association was, oh, it's a car accident. The car's going to explode. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was like, that really emotional. It's like, so I remember that very, very clearly. But, yeah. it, but again, it, let, we got about a minute. So let's, yeah. let, let's, let's try to wrap this up. Is there, is there anything else? That, that you wanted to bring up no that was that was the main the main thing okay so don't be afraid to change mentors along the way everything mm -hmm. that every everything that someone offers can be mentorship whether they're aware that you're using it or not right the goal is to is to evolve a number of filters the more filters you have to to process the information the more uh accurate you're going to be in regards to probability because you'll be able to see things from so many different perspectives. You will have an earned opinion. When, when somebody asks you something, you can say, well, in this case, it's this, in this case, it's this, right? And that's pretty powerful. Yeah. We good to go? Very helpful. Yep. Very awesome. helpful. Guess what? Thank you. All right, man. Have a great All day. Right. And, and they, they need to see that they are making progress as well. People always get concerned about, about how do I get my patient to buy into this? It's like, hey, how about being successful? Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, Tuesday, uh, clinic day. So we're gonna be kind of busy today. So we gotta dig into this, this Q&A for today. Um, this is with Zach. So I've talked to Zach a couple of other times and, and I interact with him every Thursday morning on the uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference call, 6 a.m., don't forget, Thursday. Um, and, and this is gonna be a really, really good call for, for younger coaches and, and therapists who maybe are challenged by the interaction element of, of, of working with, with clients and patients. It is the hardest part. So we can talk about structure and ISAs and intervention and exercises and all that kind of stuff. And obviously that's very important because that's that's a big part of what we do. But the most difficult portion is working with complex human beings. And so so that's what this this call is about. This is about how to establish your, your process, how to um, understand the difference between what you're asking of the client and what they think you're asking of them. So there's always a disconnect between, between what you're trying to accomplish and what the client thinks you're trying to accomplish. So, so we talk about how do you, how do you get client buy-in under these, these circumstances? How do you set the expectations? And then how do you how do you interact throughout this process? So this is a huge huge call for for a lot of people. It'd be very useful. So please pass this on if you know a, a young therapist or a young coach. This is going to be a big Q and A for them. So um, please enjoy the call. Um, if you'd like to participate in a 15 minute uh, consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Send me a question. Put 15 minute. 
uh, consultation in the subject line so I do not delete it. Don't forget to go to the YouTube channel and please sign up and subscribe for that as well so you get first dibs on all of those videos as well. I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a great Tuesday. We are rolling and clock has started. Zach, what is your question? All right. Um, so I think it was in one of the previous consultations. I forget the gentleman's name. Um, it was the, the sternum one where you're talking about string instruments. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things I think you said in that video um, was like sometimes like you could be doing all the right things, um, but like you just need to be doing more of it. Um, mm -hmm. So that kind of got me thinking, like, I think there's easier scenarios to know that you're on the right track. Like some people just respond really, really quick. And I'm a, I'm a PT. Um, so like, pain that was a lot of time what we're going after. So like they respond really quick and you kind of know you right. did something right. Um, in like those trickier cases um, where I guess like, and again, I'm thinking of like the ACL case I've talked to you before, like she's had graft side pain for five months um, by the time I kind of started these types of interventions. Um, so obviously I'm not expecting that to just go away overnight. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess kind of like, what are some other things that you can look at or like, what are you kind of considering to let you know that you're on the right track besides just the restoration of relative motions? Um, and I guess some of this might just be experience, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the patient typically comes to you um, to alleviate the pain, but we, we can use that. Um, to assist us in making some decisions, but but it's not the ultimate decision maker as to what we can influence because pain is the decision that their system is making. So while we have an influence, it can't be the it can't be the the end result because again we don't get to make the final decision on that. The thing that we can do is to restore or or offer the greatest adaptability to whatever system that we can impact. And so that's why restoration of relative motions as, as we would measure them as, as a therapist is, is sort of our guide as to what's going on. And so you always have to keep that in mind as much as we wanna to help people and to alleviate the, the, the reasoning for, the, for them to be coming to see us in the first place. It can't, it can't, be, our, it can't be our guide. Right, that's that's the patient's guide, <clears throat> and so when it comes to um, our outcome, we have to to accomplish everything that we possibly can from our perspective, and then whatever happens happens because there's there's people that that you will be able to help, and then there's people that you will not be able to help, and then maybe you're not the solution, and you have to accept that fact too, which is. You know, every, you, you, you want to be their solution, right? I mean, you want, you want, to, be, you want to be the guy that gets to help them because you, we want them to feel good. We make ourselves feel good when, when we do good things. Um, but ultimately, uh, the, the guide that we have is the stuff that we can measure and the things that the patient can accomplish in those circumstances. But we don't control the pain. And maybe there's something else wrong that is allowing that symptom to perpetuate that we have no control over. The example that I typically use, so let's, let's say you have 12 subsystems in, in your body yeah. and the treatment that you provide addresses seven of those. So you restore adaptability to seven out of 12 systems. But what if one of the remaining five is, is the causal system? So you did a great job in, in making a change. 
it's something that you could probably measure in regards to an outcome, but it didn't touch the system that's the limiting factor. So therefore the treatment appears to fail, even though you made a successful change. Maybe it's something that you can't change. But again, sometimes you just have to invest. Always remember that there's a disconnect between what you understand and what you want to see for an outcome and then the patient's understanding. They're not, they're not coming in educated in regards to the, to the perspective that you have. Um, all you have to do is um, instruct a patient on how to execute an exercise and then ask them to send you a video three days later of them doing it without any instruction at all. And you will see the disconnect between what their perception of doing it correctly is and what your perception of doing it correctly is. So there's always that gap as well, because again, we all have different perspectives and different levels of understanding. So as much as we would like everything to be perfect, and the assumption is that somebody comes in and you say, how'd you do with your home exercises? And they go, great. And they, and they say, well, did you get them done you know, two times a day, every day? And they go, well, right? And then so you know that, okay, so compliance was not at, at peak. And then you say, show me your exercises as if you're doing them um, as if I'm not here. And then they show you what they're doing and, and you see the disconnect again. Right. And so there's always this process of refinement. And, and, and that's what I would encourage you to look at this as is process. It's like, how much change can you influence at any one time? Yeah. Some of these people have adaptations that do take time to change. Yeah. I think like I, like I appreciate it. It's nice to like hear that. Cause I guess it's just like a perspective shift and something that like I've definitely gotten better at and just kind of like what you're saying, like accepting that, like there's just things that are out of our control. Um, right but like, it's still <laughs> it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. It's not like, you, know, you get into this field, like to help. And then it's just, it's right. tough. It's tough when you can't, or it's, yeah. it's you're so, not getting the desired outcome you want. Yeah. There's, there's, there's two types of constraints. Um, when you, when you look at things there, there are those constraints that, that can change instantaneously. So when we talk about certain types of muscle activity or connective tissue behavior, some of those things can change instantaneously. Some of those things are adaptations that have taken time to be acquired and they, therefore they take time to change. Right. So it's, it's, if you look at force production, I can instantaneously change force production to a certain degree, right? But putting hundred pounds on somebody's back squat in one session, pretty hard to do. doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means it takes time because some things have to be constructed. So I need, I need um, a, a greater uh, density of, of myo, um, uh, the myofilaments, right? I have to have more stuff in the muscle cell that can produce more uh, pressure, therefore, then I can increase strength levels, right? Over time. That's something that has to be constructed. It would be like, like um, somebody walking in to your clinic and saying, Hey, I want to train for the Boston marathon. Have you ever run before? No. It's like, okay, go run 26 miles and you'll be ready. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. So you have to, the, some of that stuff, you know, mitochondria have to be constructed. You have to have enzyme production for, for oxidative metabolism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So you have these, these adaptations that take place over time. Some of those things are, are what people are bringing to the table. Some of those things can change instantaneously. So you have, to, you have to have an appreciation for both. And that's why you say, okay, what do we need from this process, right? Change the things that you can change quickly. 
monitor those. And then you have to look at the key performance indicators that would be associated with the desired outcome and say, okay, what other things have to change? So if I have a patellar tendon that has been affected by surgery, which you did on that, on that young lady, right? So you've got an adaptation there that, that has five months of stuff before you even get to it. Right. So some of that stuff will change. Like I can change some of the muscle activity instantaneously. I can change some of the orientations instantaneously. Right. But some of that adaptation might take some time. I have some remodeling that might need to take place for me to make the effective change that, that she's going to need to have the desired outcome. Right. Yeah. And like we are seeing some positive change. Like since I started kind of doing the stuff that you recommended, like mm -hmm. we really haven't done like a lick of quad strengthening and like I retested her QI and went up 10%. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like there's stuff like letting me kind of know we're getting there, but like to her, like everything, like every time she comes in, it's about the pain, about the pain, about the pain. Um, okay. So, so, so change the goal, right? You have to let her know that, that one, you care whether it hurts or not, but yeah. you have to redirect her attention towards the process because if the only thing, that, that she foresees in the future as it's absolute resolution of this, then she can't appreciate the process. And then maybe she doesn't invest in it. It's like, oh, Zach gave me this exercise, but it still hurts today. It's like, okay, did you recapture external rotation? It's like, let's just say we're chasing external rotation in the hip or something like that, right? It's like, did you recapture external rotation in the hip? You have to show her, it's like, when you do this exercise correctly, we capture this and that's part of this process. This has to come first. Before anything's gonna feel better, I need to make sure that you can do this. Now she's redirecting, she's saying, okay, Zach's got me on point, I have to recapture this. This is where my investment goes. So, so right now, the goal is not the resolution of the pain, the goal is to recapture this, so then I can eventually resolve the pain. You get those, like, those short-term wins. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because again, it, we understand that we have a process in, ahead of us. The patient doesn't because they feel it every day. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so their recognition is it's either hurting or it's not. Right. And, and they, they need to see that they are making progress as well. People always get concerned about, about how do I get my patient to buy into this? It's like, Hey, how about, being successful, right? But being successful doesn't necessarily mean full resolution of all the symptoms that they came in. Being successful is, let me show you a measure that's limited, that's interfering with your ability to, to, to do what I think you need to do. So you show them, so you measure them and you show it to them. You do an intervention and then you improve that and you go, great job, that's exactly what we needed to happen first. Now we can do the next thing. And now we can do the next thing. And now we can do the next thing. And so again, make sure that they stay process oriented. Um, so, so they understand um, certain types of uh, 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 the uh, higher intensity methods of, of exercise in certain gyms. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Okay, they changed the rules. That's why they became so popular. The rule or the, or the the goal was no longer um, the result of a long-term training program. The goal became try to finish this workout. And if you do, congratulations, pat on the back, little dopamine hit, see you tomorrow, we'll do this again, right? You have to kind of create a little bit of that yourself. You have to say, yes, I understand that you want to resolve this. Yes, I understand you want to come back to play your sport, but here's what has to happen. So you set the expectations for them. You say, this has to happen, then this 
then this, then this. And I know you want the one way over here, but we have six things that we have to acquire first. Get the first one. That's your goal. Nothing else. Focus entirely on that. Accomplish that task. Then we can go to the next one. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's hard. You know, I get, I get to sit here. Easy. <laughs> I, I get to sit here in my little corner of the, corner of the, the house and, and tell you how, how this is how it should be. And it's never going to be this straight line kind of thing. Right? It's always going to be up and down. There's going to be emotions involved and there's all sorts of interference, all sorts. And sometimes we're the cause of it. Yep. Right. But from, from a, a, a principle-based approach, start to establish that process, make your, make your patient, your client aware that this is a process, right? Change the rules. So they, they realize that the goal is ultimately the resolution of their problem and restoring their ability to do whatever they want to do. But you got to do this first yeah, that's really, and that's then really help them to be successful doing that. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Anything else I can do for you? we got a couple of minutes if you got them. Um, yeah. So I guess like, I guess kind of like we'll kind of stick with this case, I guess, but um, mm-hmm. so goal still being um, like getting those connected tissues to be able to yield and like be yes, more sir. compliant. Yes, um, but then like in the case of an, like a post-op ACL, like, still need to work on plyometrics at some point. At some um, point. Yeah. Is that like completely interference at this point where she's still having pain with these other activities? Like, well, do you think like, she's going to behave normally with pain? Normally in what sense? Do you think that she'll be able to execute effectively and efficiently if she is, is feeling the interference of pain. So from a recruitment standpoint, from a position standpoint, do you think you would have any pain avoidance behaviors if you, if you gave her something that was painful? Definitely. Um, okay. Is there, is there, are there positions that she can acquire where it doesn't really bother her that much? Yeah. Okay. Is there other ways to induce frequency and velocity and variability into those connective tissues? without having to jump around and bounce around on a knee that's uncomfortable. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So use those, right? Cause you, you understand how vibration and waves work, right? Probably not to the degree that I should. Okay. If I throw a medicine ball at you and you catch it, right? Yeah. Okay. Like, and you stop it. There's this waveform that goes through you into the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I put her in a position that she can, she can tolerate. And I, and I, and I, so let's just say I put her in a a shallow split stance and I have her doing medicine ball throws. Do you think that that, that process is not going down through that extremity into the ground? That makes sense. Is that not graded exposure? Mm -hmm. Right. It's not, it's not as violent as her jumping across the ground as we would say during plyometrics, but is that not the same process? Can I not start to expose those tissues to a to a, a lighter stimulus and then progress that over time? Yeah, it's still like a preparatory activity. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Makes sense. All right, brother. I got to run to the next call. Good to see you. Good your time as always, Bill. All right, man. Have a great day. You too. Yeah. If there's no gradient, there's no movement. But if the gradient's too big bigger reduction in force output. You see it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so powerlifting is like, how small can I make this gradient? Still get enough movement, right? That I can still produce my maximum force. 
Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Well, today is Wednesday and that means that tomorrow is Thursday and we will have the usual coffee and coaches conference call at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, the link to that uh, will be on my professional Facebook page, Bill Hartman PT. Uh, if you would like to join us, the group's been stellar. Questions have been awesome. We've been going long because they're just, they're so much fun. So uh, please join us for that. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put in the subject line 15 minute consultation so I do not delete it by accident. And we will try to get those set up for you as well. Okay, digging into today's Q&A. Wednesdays are always a little tight. So we gotta go right into this. Um, this is another uh, Q&A that I did with, with uh, Ben. Ben had a very popular call, I think it was last week actually, um, in regards to, to powerlifting. And so we sort of continued um, our little process um, sticking with the topic of powerlifting. We talked a lot about what ad adaptations that, that we're actually expecting under the circumstances of, of increasing force production or, or gym strength, however you wanna look at that. And so we talked about those, and then we talked about the, the potential secondary consequences that are associated with that, how we may lose motion, how that actually might be beneficial, and then what do we really consider these, these normative measures? Are there such thing as norms? Um, so this was a, this was a really good call. I think we went like 20, 23 minutes or so. So um, make sure you, you watch the whole thing through. If you don't wanna watch it here, it'll be up on YouTube later. So please go to YouTube and subscribe. <coughs> Excuse me. Please subscribe on YouTube, and then I will see you guys tomorrow morning um, at 6 a.m. on the Coffee's Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. I'll see you guys later. Camera is rolling. Clock has started. Hey, Ben, you have the coveted last spot of the day. Just like last week, I'm blessed. Yeah. Well, here we go. Go ahead. So last week, we talked a lot about powerlifting, and I would like to continue um, in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, but just more from like a general perspective, it seems like powerlifting is this sport that requires you, um, to a degree, depending on the person, um, to, to decrease movement options, um, from the standpoint of this is something that's necessary for performance. We need to be able to compress A to P, um, and, and what really differentiates the lifters who can, who can get to the highest levels is like, how much can you, can you be able to compress without losing that relative motion or without experiencing these, these side effects. Right. Um, and so a lot of the power lifters that I, that I work with, um, you know, it's different in every case, but a, a lot of them at some point will run into some issue, whether it's an elbow, shoulder, hip, um, you know, it's always something. And so it becomes more a story of like, how can we best manage these things over the longest period of time um, without succumbing to, to worse, uh, you know, injuries and things like that. So um, my question more relates to the general scheme of like, it seems like we're sort of fighting this uphill battle. So presuming that we have things like eating, sleeping, um, you know, load management, frequency management, all those things intact, what are some strategies as far as exercise selection goes um, that we can really take advantage of with powerlifters, um, assuming that you know we are including uh, a fair amount of this alternating reciprocating work, um, 
in, in our accessory programming, because I do, it is helpful to a degree, but at a certain point, we are still trying to get strong. We are still trying to get bigger. Um, and even using these alternating activities can become at a certain point, um, you know, more compressive uh, to the individual. So. Right. Okay. So, so first things first, um, in any endeavor that requires high speed, high force, um, you're going to see a, an influence that will reduce movement options because it makes things more efficient. So let me use a sprinter example. Okay. Mm -hmm. A sprinter makes ground contact for a very brief moment in time, very brief, less than a second, right? And the amount of internal rotation that they will demonstrate because of that by traditional measures, by traditional measures, it doesn't mean that they're not internally rotating elsewhere. But if I was to say to look at a hip or something like that, they will have very, very little um, relative movement in the hip because the ground contact is so fast they, they don't want a long excursion of internal rotation because the longer the excursion of internal rotation, the longer they're on the ground and the slower they run. Mm -hmm. So it behooves them to create a shape of their body and an orientation and position of their body that provides them the greatest influence of force into the ground over the shortest time period. So anytime we're looking at performance related adaptations, we are intentionally reducing adaptability. That's how you raise performance. People that have broad scope adaptability don't play sports. They're not good at anything. The people that are exceptional at, thing, at things um, have what we would consider a, a reduced amount of adaptability somewhere in some way, shape or form, okay? Because of the extreme force output demands of powerlifting. The better you get at lifting heavy things, the more likely you are to lose your adaptability because you're taking all of your, your, so think about like just starting somebody from scratch. They have this broad scope of adaptability and I need to take away as much of that as possible and filter it into one thing, which is absolute force production. Mm -hmm. So it is inevitable in most circumstances, there may be there may be some outlier exceptions of guys that that can still lift gigantic heavy weights and and still move enough. But ultimately, your goal is to reduce that adaptability because it improves the efficiency in their performance of the sport. The more shoulder rotation I have available to me, the more shoulder rotation I have to control, and then lift the weight. If I give up that that movement. I don't have to try to control it. Now I can put more effort and energy into the lift itself, right? So let's say if I have hundred units of energy that I can, that I can put into a bench press and one guy has to control more range of motion. So he can, he has to take 30 units of that 100 to control the shoulder. And then he puts 70 into the bar. And another guy only has to, has to control with 15 units of energy to control shoulder motion because he doesn't have as much. And then he can put 85% into the, into the bar, right? So potentially more force capability um, by individual. Mm -hmm. So ultimately you're gonna lose stuff. So, so here's what this means, Ben, is that 
to, to keep someone comfortable. I'm not saying healthy. Okay. Cause we're yeah. dealing, with, we're dealing with some, I mean, powerlifting is just one of those, one of those, those activities that, that creates a lot of wear and tear on the system. Right? Um, so, um, but anything that we do that preserves adaptability can be interference to the performance. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's kind of what you're asking me. It's like, it's like, how do I, how do I not interfere and keep these people comfortable? And I would have to say that at some point in time, you might not be able to, depending on what their choices are. Like they get to make those decisions as to how far they want to take this kind of a thing. The way that, the way that you try to manage this is you, you insert a certain amount of non-bilateral symmetrical activities that would produce turning capability. So that's what we're talking about. It's like the ability to maintain the ability to turn is, is what maintains the adaptability in the system because our, our physical structure is designed to produce those turns. A squat and a bench press and a deadlift are specifically designed not to turn. The better I get at not turning, the better I get at the lifts, but I also sacrifice adaptability because my adaptability is within the turning. Okay. So you're always playing that game of like, how much can I, how much can I maintain and not interfere? Can I keep my numbers going up? But at some point in time, and this is, and this is what we're talking about genetic potentials, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. how much can you squeeze? How much muscle mass can you acquire? So, so more muscle mass is just more squeeze. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Right. We put more stuff into a confined space and then that increases the intramuscular pressure. That intramuscular pressure squeezes the bejesus out of the system. And then that allows us to lift more weight because what we can do is we can take a column of water and squeeze it tighter and tighter and tighter. That's basically what lifting is. Right. And then that allows us to put more pressure behind that fluid. And that's what lifts the weight. It's the water that lifts the weight. Okay. Mm-hmm. But like I said, in that process, we're going to take away something. Right. I have shifted resources so far in one direction that I will sacrifice. How much can you, how much can you put in without creating interference? I don't know. It's a process, Ben. Right. You do stuff, you see what happens and then you do more stuff. Right. Because the threshold of um, what you would consider that point at which someone is, is moving into their, their patterns that would feed you know, their powerlifting performance is, is sometimes difficult to find, right? Because you could give someone, um, you know, a split squat and you could put a dumbbell in, in the contralateral hand to, to try to restore like internal rotation or something like that. And one person, it could work totally well with the same relative load, but sure. others, it could, it, could, it could be a total disaster. Yes. Yeah. Welcome, welcome, welcome to uh, coaching. so so then sort of it's predictable but it's just not it's just not that's but that so you're always running an experiment right you know programming to to see these outcomes and you say oh man it's like i gave i gave somebody this this one strategy to work on it did great and numbers went up and everybody's all happy and i and i tried to utilize the same strategy with somebody else and it just didn't work either not as well or it became interference Right. right Yeah. And it also, 
I, I have tried in the past to use like key performance indicators for, for range of motion. So, yeah. you know, is this person's straight leg raise, um, you know, is it, is it at least 50 degrees, but you know, I'll see people who have a straight leg raise that's just like terrible and they're totally pain free and it's totally fine. Sure. So at a certain point, it's like the physiological norms almost seem like a bit arbitrary when it comes down to the individual level. So way. let's, let's, let's change the perspective on that just a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, let's not call them norms. Norm implies normal. Let's call mm-hmm. it average. Okay. Let's call them averages from now on. Because norm is idiosyncratic. Like normal for one person is not normal for someone else. Physical structure determines what your capabilities will be. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's why certain structures are ideal for certain activities. Look at, watch the Olympics on TV and watch the swimming. And before they start the race and they introduce everybody that's on the blocks, right? They they all look exactly the same. Like their Mm -hmm. body types are exactly the same because that body type is ideal for swimming. Mm -hmm. The only way you can tell them apart is the the color of their, their caps, right? And so everybody's movement is idiosyncratic. That's why, that's why I'm such a stickler about remaining process oriented. It's like, oh, I want this guy to have more, to use a term, shoulder flexion. Guess what? He might not have it ever because his physical structure does not lend it to having that. Can he reach overhead? Yes. How does he do it compared to someone else, right? And yeah, let's use the Olympic swimmer example. Does an Olympic swimmer reach overhead the same way as a five foot 10, 310 pound strongman? Probably not. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean that they, they both can't achieve a similar task. It just means that the way that they're going to do it is going to be dependent on their physical structure. So, so again, I encourage you to look at this stuff from an idiosyncratic standpoint. Yes, we have generalities that we can use to describe things, but ultimately what someone is capable of is not the same thing that someone else is capable of. Uh-huh. So we are making comparisons to an average, right? Is a 90 degree straight leg raise best for increasing your back squat? For someone, maybe it is representative of that. For someone else, maybe not. Okay. Yeah. That's, and again, I, I, I sound like a broken record some days, but that's why this job is hard because you're, you're, you're dealing with individuals. We have similarities that, that can guide us, but ultimately when you're, when you're working with someone, you have to take into consideration their, their individual capabilities. So kind of shifting topics a little bit. Um, last week we talked about the bench press um, and a lot of people that I work with are, are really, really used to squeezing their backs as much as they can and getting into this uh-huh. really, really strong arch. And obviously that's, that's a strong strategy. And a lot of high level lifters encourage people yeah. to, to grow their back and those kinds of things. Um, but a lot of times, um, a lot of times people I'll work with will experience shoulder issues when they are trying to squeeze their backs that much which makes total sense to me. But instead of implementing some sort of corrective exercise, what I'll do is just tell people to get into like 
more of a passively spinally extended, traditionally extended position um, where they are still in this arch, but they're not trying to, to squeeze their scaps back. They're not trying to squeeze them down. Sure. And a lot of times this, this clears up a lot of issues pretty quickly. Uh-huh. So yes, I was thinking about this in relation to our conversation. And I was thinking about if we just use rib cage and, and humerus, for example, right? Or rib cage or uh, scapula and humerus, for example, uh-huh. when we are not cueing ourselves to squeeze that same way is what we're doing really just increasing relative motion. Okay. You're making space. Okay. So, so let's use a muscle as a representation of this. When I contract a muscle, yeah. intramuscular pressure increases because I'm squeezing it down. I'm trying to make it into a smaller space, if you will. Now it does get wider. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I get that part. And then we're, we're actually altering the, the connective tissue behaviors, but we're, we're trying to, to reduce the amount of space that's available to move. So once again, we go back to the, to the initial example, we go back to the initial example where it's like, we're trying to minimize some of this adaptability. So, so the squeezing that you're talking about is, is, is the compressive strategy of using the muscles themselves to create the pressure change. But if I eccentrically orient a certain degree of muscle, what that does is it allows expansion so that it increases the, the space around me that I can move into. So you just gave them external rotation space to access mm-hmm. a position and then they're going to produce intra-rotation a little bit differently from that position. And that might be all that they needed in regards to relative motions, adaptability to reduce the compressive strategies that typically, typically will elicit some form of symptom like pain. So yeah, that makes, that it's makes not a bad sense. strategy. It's not a bad strategy um, as far as the acquisition of position and movement. But again, if we're talking about maximum load, that could be interference, but again, you have to follow the process, right? So maybe I can use that strategy periodically, but ultimately, again, from a performance perspective, the end game in in regards to force production is gonna be how much pressure can I create? Because it's that pressure on the fluid volume that lifts the weight. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think there is an equivalent for the squat and deadlift of this example. There, there's no real difference in, in, in concept, right? The, the shapes are a little bit different, right? But ultimately it's going to be the exact same concept, right? Do you arch when you squat? I mean, not, not a ridiculous amount now. Okay. So I don't know how to measure a ridiculous amount. <laughs> but conceptually speaking yes you do right yes yeah uh, you wouldn't use you wouldn't use a rounded back position to try to get a maximum effort squat right right hopefully you yeah and you wouldn't do the same thing for Della because again those those strategies create expansion which is creating space for movement mm-hmm. not force into the ground. So any expansion that you create is, is movement away from, from the ground. Movement away from the ground doesn't allow me to push into the ground. So when you're bench pressing, your back is pushing into the bench. 
right? When you're squatting and deadlift, your feet are pushing into the ground. Anything that I do from an external rotation um, perspective is to acquire a position to allow me to, to complete the activity as desired. So um, you ever notice that like the longer somebody lifts, the more they, they shift towards like a sumo presentation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a reason for that because that's where external rotation is because I got to get down and get the bar, right? I got to start from somewhere. So, so there's a certain technique that I have to use to, to perform the lift. So there's a tendency and not, not for everyone by any stretch of the imagination, but there's a tendency for guys to slowly move their feet out farther and farther because they're compressing more and more and extra rotation gets farther and farther out that way. And it becomes smaller and smaller for me to acquire. Right. Um, so the principle is, is applied across the board because the, the end goal is force production. How do you produce force? I squeeze based on, what we would call bench squat and deadlift, right? There are certain positions that you have to acquire to make it an official lift, if you will. And so that's the shape I need to be able to acquire. But the principle is the same. Okay. We have time. We have I'll time. Give you four, I'll give you four minutes. How about that? Is that fair? Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Last last, see, this is the benefit of the last call of the day. See, now I'm going to get, now I'm going to get a bunch of requests. Can I be the last call of the day? No, no. It, it's, Although it, all, it's all luck of the draw. It's like when you came through, it's like, okay, Ben's going to be the last call again. There you go. All right. Yeah, go there are going to be some suspicious people, but yes. Um, I know. Well, as long as you keep paying me, I will keep giving you the, the yes. last call of the day. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so then I can imagine that if we, if we take this idea and we, and we sort of lateralize the thinking towards like, what are the external constraints that can also help us, um, you know, achieve this, this, this expansion under load, you, you would then, you could consider like using a heel elevation, something like a heel elevation to create that expansion somewhere else, Correct. which is why people can ultimately um, hit depth maybe a little bit more easily. Of course, of course. But you're, but you're sacrificing force production because <clears throat> any element of ER that I add <clears throat> to the position of maximum propulsion. All right, so, so max P is the point where somebody can apply the greatest force into the ground. Right. Your force into the ground determines what you can actually lift upward, right? So that's max propulsion. That is a point in time. It is a singular, infinitesimally small point in time, okay? Any deviation in either direction. So if I go to early propulsion or I go to late propulsion, I'm moving towards external rotation. That allows me movement capability, but it immediately reduces my force production capabilities. So there's like, like I said, if, if you could get to max P, here's the problem with max P, you can't move. Mm -hmm. Time stops, like literally time stops. Max force, but no time. So therefore there's no movement. So if I'm gonna execute a squat, bench or deadlift, there is a certain degree of movement that I need to demonstrate. Otherwise you don't get your three white lights, right? Okay. You ever see a guy guy go too shallow on a squat and he gets red lighted? Yep. Okay, so what happened? Too much pressure, can't move, right? Squat suit too tight, wraps too tight, belt too tight. Or his own 
self-generated force production is so high that he can't move. Right. Okay. No gradient. No gradient. No, it, there you go. Okay. So, so you, you totally picked the word right out, right out of, out of my, my head here. It's like that distance away from max P is my gradient. Yeah. If there's no gradient, there's no movement, but if the gradient's too big, bigger reduction in force output, you see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so powerlifting is like, how small can I make this gradient still get enough movement right? That I can still produce my maximum force. And, and then eventually at some point in time, there is a genetic limit. Mm -hmm. You're going to hit it. All right. Hopefully. I mean, that, that ultimate, I mean, you know, you're not going to increase force production forever. Everybody's going to have some sort of limit. You're going to break or you're just going to top out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not everybody gets to squat a grand. Yeah. You know, unfortunately. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's unfortunate. <laughs> Fortunately, under under many circumstances. Yeah. Was that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Really insightful. Excellent. Great questions, Ben. Thank you uh, for another call. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, man. I'll see you. Thank you. You too. You're Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is. Perfect. Does everybody have everybody have their coffee today? The battle for the first question has a winner today. <laughs> so, Luke, uh, how long is your list? Oh, buddy! <laughs> uh, if you if you could see, yeah, I can't see. So you're lucky. Yeah, is that those are questions? Yeah, dude. I just so whenever I think about things, I just kind of write them down on a note. Oh, okay. And then save them for either you or Pat and pass okay. away. All right. Um, all right. So my question kind of relates to uh, relates to progression and progressing people through things. Uh -huh. And like working in the fitness world, I oftentimes find myself cat catch myself progressing people just through sets, through training volumes, and things like that. But I also recognize the that you can progress people through exercises and through progressions of exercises. I was just wondering if you have any, like, I don't want to use the word volume landmarks because that's like a very bodybuilding place to be, but like how much volume does somebody have to accrue at exercise one with like more reference before they move on to exercise two, which is a progression with like, let's say less reference and more potential for loading and things of that nature. So I don't, <clears throat> I don't look at it that way. Okay. Um, cause I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's, I, you're, you're looking kind of at apples and oranges when you're looking at saying, Oh, you can do a certain volume of this exercise. And, and, and so now I need to put you on a different exercise. That's like, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, because the exercise selection is based on, on what their capabilities are and what their needs may be. So, so when you're, when you're programming, the program is to close the gap between point A where they are and point B where you want to take them or where they want to go or what, what their potential is or what their, what their sport needs may be or whatever, however you want to look at it. And so, so exercise selection for me is, is a, a, an outcome-based selection. So it's like, what do I want or what do I, what do I need to, to close the gap? So let me give you, let me give you an example, okay? A volleyball player, um, when she jumps off of a box and she lands, 
her knees slam together. So that means that she's accelerating towards the ground rather rapidly, okay? Um, if she uh, is of a narrow ISA structure, I can make a few assumptions about, about why she does that. And so what I wanna do then is I wanna give her a, a movement-based strategy to give her greater control and her ability to, to decelerate that landing. So the selection that would be was like, well, what do I want her to do? Well, I need her to be able to stop. Okay, so I'm gonna teach her how to stop. And so I'm gonna give her a way to do that, which might be like, a, I, like I started with a high box squat and I teach her to stop the descension of the, of the anterior pelvic outlet. So the box will teach her to, to do that. And then I load her appropriately so I can create a much stronger concentric orientation. And then I add right to it so I can create an overcoming action of the connective tissues that she would need to, to improve her ability to, to decelerate quicker. And so right there, I've just given you a series of activities that, that um, basically fulfill what her mechanical needs might be <clears throat> versus saying, this exercise follows, this exercise follows, this exercise follows, this exercise, because it doesn't. Right. It's, it's what, what do I need to, to, to see happen? Um, and and uh, I tell you where I see this show up a lot, Luke, is, is when people are, are doing like, um, like jumping base drills or, or anything that's explosive or, or what would fall into the category of plyometrics is everybody thinks that there's like a progression of those things. Right. <clears throat> and again, it comes down to, to what the needs are if I have two different people and I have one that's a really good dampener and one that's not, I can put them on the same hurdle jump activity, change a couple of things, and, and then I can support the needs of, of those individuals. So if I have somebody that already dampens, but can't, but can't maintain um, the, the, uh, the tissue stiffness that they need, they have to bounce across the ground without, without delay. Somebody that can't dampen has to, has to land and stick and learn how to distribute those forces. And so again, it's like I have two different people, two different needs. It's not like they're gonna go through some magical progression where, oh, this is exercise 1A, this is exercise 1B, this is exercise 1C. And then when you accumulate right. you know, so many reps, then I know that you're qualified. I don't know what that means, Grace, there, there we go. Uh, th th that you're qualified to do the next thing. It's like the next thing is like, what, what is the next need? Right. right. So I don't, I don't look at it. I don't look at it that way. I try to be a little bit more particular. And, and I think that's why, that's why my model becomes so important because it does guide that. It, it tells me, it says, okay, so what positions are, are desired? What actions of the connective tissues am I targeting? And then I have, so, so think about this from a structural standpoint. Okay. I have four, I have four phases of propulsion. I have seven, seven influences of force. Okay. Right. So, and I have, two archetypes, four configurations, all that stuff categorizes everybody and mixes them down into a, a one second. Categorize them and mixes everything down. So my exercise selection becomes exceptionally well-targeted. 
<laughs> and then then it's a monitoring process and that that comes down it's like okay now we're talking about what are my key performance indicators for this individual that's going to tell me when when to make a change and then what that change should be would be based on the the new outcome whatever it may be whether i whether i suck and i and i chose the wrong wrong path and i need to make a course correction there or I do make a favorable change, and now I got to figure out what next is. You see, you see the difference. I think I think part of um, like just kind of looking for an affirmation and like a heuristic out of all that. Would you say it's almost like you're using your coach's eye to see where the, when they demonstrate competency of a certain thing, and then you move on to the next goal and kind of start attacking that. It, yes, but I but I also I also have have measures that are representative of of certain certain things that that they may need right right and and most of the programs that you see that have been effective for someone they are historical representations of what was done they didn't they weren't pre-written and then they followed it and they go wow look at this great outcome they were they were changing it on the fly constantly and then they kept track and then they said here's the program that we did and then everybody tries to do that program and then they go oh it didn't work for me well no kidding because it wasn't written for you and it wasn't what it wasn't the way that programs exist it's like programs change on a constant basis you should have some kind of structure to it but don't 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 cookie cutter it okay wait a minute i got four configurations i got two archetypes i got i got four phases of propulsion and seven components of force Good morning, happy Friday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, a little bit of a different Friday. My schedule's a little different, got different calls and we're shooting a bunch of stuff for iFestU today. Um, reminder, if you're not signed up for iFest University, please do so, you're missing out. We got some really good stuff up there. We got some great people that are involved. Um, with that, great questions. So uh, um, please join us on that. Speaking of joining us, yesterday's uh, Coffee and Coaches conference call was pretty awesome. So I'm going to show a second segment of that today because um, it was really good. Um, we covered everything from connective tissue behaviors. We talked about a bunch of static stretching stuff. Um, but uh, today's segment is on the connective tissue behavior making comparisons between exercises as to as to what your response will be very important when you're when you're uh, writing some programming and then we also talked about the influences of, of, of the structural elements as to how they would be applied to programming as well so i think there's a lot of good questions that were asked and answered um, so i think you'll like these segments uh, reminder the podcast will be up on sunday um, so you get to review all of that um, via audio don't forget to sign up for the uh, YouTube channel so you can get the, the videos first and foremost and then I will see you guys next week have a great weekend I'm gonna stick with the connective tissue theme a little sure. bit um, so I know we, we talked about kind of like drop can catch variations versus like a back squat or front squat and something in terms of how like the tissues would behave less stiff versus more stiff respectively and I think I'm just kind of confusing myself a little bit um, okay. so I guess like the way at least that's something about it right now in my head it's not making sense why they would behave less versus more stiffly. Cause the way I'm looking at it is like with that drop and catch variation, like, yes, like it's unweighted for a second and then you're dropping underneath it. But from like the, if you, it seems like you're almost just like changing the starting point of when you begin to interact with the load. Yes. 
so I guess I'm not seeing how from like that starting point to the bottom of the movement, it would be different. Okay. Other than like visually, I can see how the speed of the movement's quicker with one, but that doesn't correlate with the, the rate of loading of the tissues that I'm getting, I'm getting lost there. Okay. Um, are we, are, give me, give me an exercise that we're talking about so I can, I can speak from a, a very clear frame of reference. Um, so if you just have like a kettlebell kind of like clean and then drop underneath it. Okay. That's perfect. That's perfect. Okay. So, um, you're, you're, you're doing the drop and the catch, right? And so you do one where you're actually all the way down at the catch. Okay. And then you do one that's about halfway between the drop and the catch. Is there a difference between the two? She's saying wh where I finished the movement. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. What's the difference? What's the difference? Is you, you have less time to slow it down. Okay. Great. Less time. Okay. So less time would be a faster rate, correct? Less time would be a faster rate. Yes. Okay. So you've just differentiated which one would produce a stiffer response in regards to the connective tissues. Same exercise, time-based response, right? Shorter time, faster rate, stiffer tissues. Longer time, slower rate, more yield. So then be like with like a, just like a, a regular loaded type squat, like because you're not really like trying to drop underneath and like slow it, make it come to a stop. Like it's almost like already stopped. That's why you get that super stiff behavior with it or the, the most stiff behavior with it. Okay. Once again, so here we go. Same exercise. You're squatting with a barbell. Got it? Mm -hmm. Okay. 89.7% of your 1RM load on your back. 40% of your 1RM load on your back. Same squat, same depth. Which one is stiffer? The 89.7. Yeah. So again, you have to differentiate. So, so you know how I'm, I'm fond of talking about the seven components of force, right? So each one of those will create a, a, a different behavior in regards to how the connective tissues will respond to, to load, time, frequency, variability, et cetera, et cetera, right? But when you make a direct comparison like this, it's a little bit easier to see the difference between one and, and the other, how it would affect those tissues. Yep. So in addition to just like the drop and catch versus like the continuous squat, like differentiation of those two. Yeah. There's another big reason you just get more yielding capacity. Cause like you can't do the other one with as much weight. So that's a factor that is a factor, but it, there's also a greater time between uh, uh, there's actually, it, it, it looks fast visually you're dropping quickly. It looks fast, but the amount of time that the tissues are exposed before they would reach like the peak magnitude of that, that effort mm -hmm. is longer. Yeah. You see, you see the difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have, we have to be aware of that. Right. And, and again, it's, it's dirty and gray. It's like, well, wait a minute. It's the magnet. Like, so then so I, get, I get a lot of questions about this kind of stuff and, and people give me like four categories. Like, okay, so if I'm using this magnitude and we're going at this speed, it's like, okay, give me a direct comparison so you can understand the difference. 
because all of this stuff is happening at the same time, right? I yeah. talk about seven components of force as if they're individual, individually applied, but they're all applied at the same time. One might, might be represented to a greater degree. So if we're talking about a really high percentage of your one RM, magnitude might be the most important thing on my mind right now, because that's what I am targeting um, from an intent standpoint. You see, it's like, what do you, what do you want the, the, the end result to be? So if I have an intention, how can I manipulate this exercise, knowing how these, these forces are applied to the tissues, knowing what the response should be based on the properties of viscoelastic tissues. It's like, and then what is the outcome? And that's how you know you did it right. Because you say, I want this, this end result, I'm going to do this. And then this happened, you go, way to go me. Or you go, hmm, I need to rethink what I'm doing. Yep. Right. That's helpful. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Nate, it's been a long time since you've asked a question, brother. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm listen, listening, absorbing. Um, so I'm going to go back to uh, Luke's question way, way, way in the very beginning. Um, Man, I don't even have a memory of that. Go ahead. I, it's all right. I got gotcha. you. Um, <laughs> um, related decline. I can't help it. Yeah. Well, then it's not your fault then. Well, the, the great thing is I can read the same book every day and it, it seems new to me. So that's, that's a nice thing. Yeah. Um, so I think I need to make like a, a exercise selection chessboard kind of thing. Um, Cause like, I, I think I have some representations in my head, but I think I need to put it down on paper. So um, you mentioned when Luke was talking about like kind of progression and exercise selection, you had configuration, bias, for, force production, and propulsion were kind of those main factors, right? Okay. Are there mm -hmm. any more that you would add to that? Oh, maybe I don't know. I was just I was just riffing. Uh, yeah, so I'm just no. Now you can <sighs> think about it. So a little bit. two archetypes, four phases of two archetypes, four phases of propulsion. Propulsion. Boy, I can't even speak now. Let me start over two archetypes, four phases of propulsion, four configurations, seven components of force. Yep. Got it. Bingo. I was just wondering if you would, if you would put any more in there as far as the, principles the, of exercise selection of or not. Days of the week, maybe, I don't know. Um, no, I think, I think if you, if you can, if you can address all of that, I, I think that that becomes very powerful, right? Because um, like I said, that's a lot of information that's available to you to make a decision. <clears throat> the, the hard thing is gonna be is categorizing activities, right? Because some things are very, very similar, some things, and then we go back to, to you know, Zach's question. It's like, you know, we can see the difference in, in the yielding actions based on time and, and within the same exercise. It's, it's very easy. Like if we're just talking about like some kind of squat um, exercise, we can, we can distinguish things, you know, from a, from a force standpoint, we can see those differences, but can you see the differences between, like I said, hurdle jumps and split squats, you know, and then it becomes, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And so what, what you're gonna do there is you're just gonna make sure that your intention is included in that activity. 
then the question mark is, is, is it enough where it has the impact for the change that you desire? Right. So, right? You so if I'm trying to capture early, if I'm trying to capture an early propulsive strategy and I, and I put somebody in a split squat with their, their foot on a ramp, right? Um, I could also do a TRX squat where they're leaning backwards and capture early there too. Mm -hmm. Which one should I use? Whatever you have available. Well, it's it's it it, it comes. There, there's other there's other needs. Like there's other reasons. Like okay, so the split squat's going to induce a little bit more turn. The TRX is going to limit some turn. So where do I want to place the emphasis? Right? Am I trying to make a change that's that's a little bit more you know centrally driven where I need more like I'm trying to drive counter mutation of the of the sacrum versus just creating the turn, which would imply that I've already got some element of counter mutation available to me. So then maybe I bias myself towards the TRX squat to create the to create the counter mutation first, right? You see it? Yeah. You see it, you see it. It's like it's like you can you can go deep, 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 deep on this stuff. You just gotta make sure that your intention is included in the activity. And then you and you have fun. something to test it against, right? Absolutely. Well, there you go. So now you get back to key performance indicator. You say, okay, what what change am I trying to make? How will it be represented? Yeah. Okay. Got it. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. Yeah. Grace, hey, uh, I have a question for you, Grace. Un unmuted. Fire away. Uh, did I hear a nasty rumor that you're gonna you're gonna be coming to IFAST in the in the summertime? You did, and it's okay. I'll be taking uh, nearly one hundred percent accurate. I'll, I'll be taking the summer off. No way. The whole summer, not gonna be there. Yeah. You're lying. Of course I'm lying. Great. There's only two places. There's only two, <laughs> there's only two places in the whole world that I go. This corner of my house and IFAS. Like literally, I don't know how to go anywhere else. Um, so I, I'm just trying to weigh the balance of uh, if I want a client to have a training effect, but also regain motion, like that side plank row isn't going to accomplish the regain motion side, but would give them the training effect. So it's like, I'm thinking about how to balance both of both of those things. Okay. Um, so, so what would be your indication of the training effect? What training effect do we want as a result of the activity? That's, that's your, that's your first question. And I'm not saying you have to answer it. I'm just saying that's the first sure. question that you have to, to answer. So every time, every time that you, you intervene, you, you want to have an intent and that intent should be um, measurable in some way, shape or form, whether it be your coach's eye or you're going to have some other activity that, that you're going to make a comparison with like a before and an after or whatever. Okay. You don't just blindly say, oh, we we're going to train today. Right. Right. And, that, and that's all fine and wonderful. Sometimes you just want to play and I get it. But, but in general, when, when we're intervening, you, you want to have purpose behind what you're doing. And then mm -hmm. you have to be able to identify when you have, met that intention right right so then thinking back to luke's original question of like clients who have general goals of either wanting to look better and feel better yep. those two are often opposed when it comes to uh hypertrophy goals or feeling better in many cases might mean people need more expansion yes um so like how would you 
how do you tend to in your model? Well, since you're mostly seeing people for pain, but maybe thinking the performance side of like clients that come to IFAST to train, how do you weigh those interventions in your like process of like introing them and getting them started into programs? Okay, so so we identify what the, what they need first and foremost. Okay, if, if it's a performance related client, then performance is the goal, right? Okay, so we identify what their what their needs are under those circumstances, and then we identify what the interference is if there is any. So sometimes we get like literally, I had one dude that came in. He's a a pitcher for the Kansas City Royals, and I saw him walk in. I was like, this guy doesn't need me at all. Go train him. Do whatever you want like literally do whatever you want. He was like a specimen of this perfect representation of relative motions and perfectly happy, like go lucky kind of a guy. Um, and so we didn't really have any interference. So we, so we, could, we could pick out, it's like, what do we need to focus on for performance? And we did that, okay? The thing you wanna do though is, is, is look, at, look at narrowing like this, this scope of what you're going to be working on, that will be very, very helpful. So if I need to raise performance, depending on the level of the athlete, the higher the level of the athlete, the smaller the window of change there is, therefore the greater volume of activity that is required to make a significant change. So force production is easy to talk about, very rarely do I need to work on it with my professional athletes, but we, but we do at times. Um, so let's just say force production is, is the goal. And so I'm gonna have him pull something up off the floor that's very, very heavy, All right? So I can focus on that. So his greatest training volume associated with the, with the, the, um, the primary um, uh, adaptation that we're chasing that has the greatest volume. I do all that. If there's anything that interferes that's associated with that, I spend most of my time undoing that to whatever degree that I can without interfering with the force production. So, so this, is, this, is a tough, this is a tough thing to, to execute because I, I, do, I need something, right? but I don't want to take away, I don't want to destroy the efforts that I just um, you know, um, put this guy through to make a change. But that's basically how you do it. You say, okay, what do I need for performance? Is there something that, that if I gave him this, his performance could potentially improve? I gotta do it. What are the, what are the secondary consequences? And then, so when you and Nate get off this call and you guys hang out and you're, and you're talking about, okay, wait a minute, I got four configurations. I got two archetypes. I got, I got four phases of propulsion and seven components of force. That's it's very, very useful because you'll be able to say, if I do this activity, I'll get the return on investment that I'm trying to, but I have this interference and you go, but wait a minute, but what if we change the rate over here? And I say, now I'm doing, instead of doing like a, like a slow, slower tempo split squat, then maybe I'm doing something that's a little bit more oscillatory and I eliminate the thing that was going to create interference that's associated with that activity. So I, that, that's one of the advantages of looking at things under these circumstances is because I can um, categorize the, the primary influence and then I can also identify secondary consequences. Because what a lot of people do is they get the primary influence correct. That's easy. 
It's the secondary consequences that'll come back and create the, the problems. 